Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 to 36. Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognised Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak. And all who touched him were healed. This is the word of the Lord. As we stand, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we do pray for your help tonight. And uh, we pray most especially that uh, through this, this scripture, through this passage, you'll be showing us the Lord Jesus afresh, showing us his majesty and greatness, and thereby dealing with our doubt and little faith, and helping uh, us to help others to deal with those things too. So please help us tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, do sit down. As you sit down, if you could be turning back in your Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 14, that's page 981 in the Church Bibles. It'd be very helpful if you have that open in front of you, because that's what we're going to be looking at uh, in just a moment. We'll be looking at the passage from uh, verse 22 through to the end of the chapter, and uh, a little bit at the beginning of the chapter as well. Now, I wonder if you know the frustration of watching someone deal with a problem, a personal problem, perhaps a severe problem, and the first thing they do is pretty much the opposite of what they should do. That is a very frustrating thing to observe, isn't it? Uh, I guess it can happen in all sorts of situations. Uh, You may even have experienced that feeling if you watch lots of films over this Christmas break. So, So take someone dealing with their car breaking down uh, late at night. They're in the middle of a, of a thunderstorm. It's dark, it's lonely, it's a night pretty much like tonight perhaps. And uh, what are they going to do in that situation? Suddenly a lightning flash illuminates a nearby house. It's kind of dark and crooked and then a bat's flying around its chimneys. Oh, thank goodness, they say. I'll go and ask for help. And uh, watching on, watching that film, there's nothing you can do to stop them doing that. Except switch off, I guess, or, or you know, turn and watch a, a better film. But the problem I want, I want to, to address tonight is 
the problem of doubt, the problem of doubt. That is a severe personal problem that I want us to address. And the frustration I want us to address is the frustration of watching people deal with doubt by doing pretty much the opposite of what they should do. And we'll find out what they should do tonight. And if we think that we're never going to have to face the problem of doubt, then we quickly need to think again. Uh, To begin with, I suppose, there are all kinds of doubts, all kinds of doubts. We could say that people with faith, uh, rather like happy families, are relatively alike, uh, but every doubter is unhappy and doubts in his or her own way. Doubts for the Christian can range uh, from doubts about the very existence of God to doubt about the identity or uniqueness of Jesus, uh, to doubt about the trustworthiness of the Bible, uh, to doubt about particular promises or doctrines or ethics, uh, to personal doubts, perhaps doubts that uh, God's saving purposes apply to me personally, a sort of a lack of assurance, that kind of doubt. We might also say that behind every sin lies some sort of doubt. There's, there's doubt in every sin as I commit a sin. There's doubt that God has the right to decide what is right and what is wrong, and God has the right to decide to judge. And all kinds of people doubt. If you doubt that all Christians doubt, then I doubt that you'll last very long without either doubting yourself or encountering serious doubt in someone you know, quite possibly someone close to you. Uh, Listen to John Calvin on this. Calvin, as you may know, helped uh, the people of his day to rediscover the importance of faith. And you might have thought for someone who put so much emphasis on faith and salvation by faith alone, that Calvin might have had no time for doubt, that he might have insisted that faith should always be strong and unassailable. So did John Calvin think that it was possible to have a perfect faith? Well, actually, no, he didn't. Uh, Listen to this from his uh, Institutes, his great big fat book of doctrine. This is from his Institutes. He says this, Surely while we teach that faith ought to be certain and assured, we cannot imagine any certainty that is not tinged with doubt. We cannot imagine it. Or we cannot imagine any assurance that's not assailed by some anxiety. Rather, we say that that believers are in perpetual conflict with their own unbelief. So in other words, Calvin was far from thinking that it was possible to have a perfect and unassailable faith. Believers are, quote, in perpetual conflict with their own unbelief. And of course, he had many biblical examples to draw from, from all the way from David to Paul. But while doubt may be all pervasive, all around us, I guess it's not surprising that no one really wants to talk about it. I mean, who wants to come to church like you've come to church this evening and admit your doubts? Who wants to do that? People, people would rather not turn up and say something like that, then say something like that, which is, of course, exactly what they do. And so people drift away, unnoticed, with all their doubts unspoken. And here's the deep frustration, the deep frustration that in doing so, 
as we see t- shall see together tonight, they are doing the exact opposite of what they should do to deal with their doubt. But while we may be uh, fairly slow to talk about it, uh, God does want to talk about it. Through the scriptures, God does want to talk about doubt. He knows that it's an issue. And as our loving Heavenly Father, he does want to address it. And I want to persuade you this evening that in Matthew chapter 14, God is speaking to address our doubts and uh, what Jesus calls our little faith. And he does so by, first of all, magnifying the divine majesty of Jesus and then by encouraging us with an example to keep our eyes fixed on that same Jesus. So this is our purpose this evening, to deal with doubt and to do that by rediscovering the majesty of Jesus as he is portrayed in the Gospels. To learn, therefore, how to help others deal with doubt. And this chapter, I think, gives us at least three reasons for faith rather than doubt, belief rather than unbelief. Number one, because unbelief is ugly. Number two, because faith comes from seeing the greatness of Jesus. And number three, because doubt only comes from taking our eyes off him. Okay, so unbelief is ugly. Faith comes from seeing the greatness of Jesus. Doubt comes from taking our eyes off him, and it only comes from that. And uh, we're just going to tackle those three things in turn. So here's the first reason here for faith rather than doubt, belief rather than unbelief. Because, Matthew assures us, unbelief is ugly. Unbelief is ugly. And we get this from looking at this particular passage in its context and within chapter 14 of Matthew's gospel as a whole. You see, it seems there's a a repeated pattern in this section of Matthew's gospel. It runs from chapter 14 all the way to the middle of chapter 16. It goes like this. First, we have some incident that makes us disgusted at unbelief and hostility to Jesus. And then Jesus withdraws to another place. Uh, And then we get some amazing miracles. A focus on Jesus himself. There's some amazing miracles from Jesus. Very often spectacular kind of nature miracles. And all of those are there to encourage a faith in him. Uh, So what we find there is a, a very simple method from Matthew is to disgust us with unbelief on the one hand and then to attract us with the glory and majesty of Jesus uh, in the second part of the pattern. And in chapter 14, uh, we've already had the disgust side of that. Um, and if you've got chapter 14 open in front of you, you can see that it, it comes in a very extreme, came in an extreme, very extreme form, in fact, in the squalor of Herod and his murder of John the Baptist. That's right at the beginning of the chapter, back in verses Uh, 1 through to 12. And that's, in fact, the disgusting truth about where unbelief can take you. Uh, For Herod, this is verses uh, 10 to 12, it led him to serving up the head of a good man on a plate at a drunken dinner party. That is, it's hard to imagine, really, is it, a more disgusting episode than that. A head served up on a plate at a dinner party. This is the consequence of his unbelief. This is the consequence of his unbelief. 
Second Timothy verse 13. What does Jesus do? Jesus withdraws. He makes his distance from all of that very clear. He goes to serve a minister in a different place. And it's after that that we get the impositive encouragement to belief here. And the picture of Jesus in the second half of this chapter is in deliberate contrast to what we've seen from Herod. Herod has been steeped in superstition. He's been worried about only himself. Uh, Jesus transcends the mere magic that, uh, that uh, Herod is kind of obsessed with by helping and healing people, uh, bringing them out from the shadow of death with a, a divine power through his miracles. Herod clearly couldn't care less about the people he's supposed to be responsible for. Jesus, on the other hand, in the second half of the chapter, shows them compassion. Herod throws a drunken party for his mates. Uh, Jesus holds a messianic banquet. This is the feeding of the 5,000. And he invites everyone. And for those who have eyes to see, it shows him full of divine power and a divine love and a divine generosity. This is the sort of thing Yahweh did, the the Lord God did in the scriptures. And uh, now it seems through Jesus, he's doing it all over again. And that contrast between Herod and Jesus continues into our verses this evening. Herod has been crippled by fear. Fear of ghosts, fear of his wife, fear of the people. Look at this in verse 25. Verse 25. In what you might describe as a, as a, a slightly fearful situation, it's in the low point of the night, right in the middle of the night, Here is Jesus, and he is casually walking on the water. He's about as far from being afraid as you can possibly imagine. So here's the second reason for faith rather than doubt, belief rather than unbelief. Because faith comes from seeing the greatness of Jesus. Faith comes from seeing the greatness of Jesus through the gospel accounts of incidents like this one. Now notice first that Jesus clearly wants his disciples to see him at this point. They don't don't see him at first, of course. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. But take courage, says Jesus in verse 27. Whatever Herod might think, I'm not a ghost. Simply, I am. I am. That's uh, where it says, it is I here, but literally that's just, I am. In other words, Jesus uses the words, the words Yahweh, the Lord God, uses of himself in the books of Exodus and Isaiah, I am. And just as Yahweh's great desire in Exodus, the Exodus was that through the signs and wonders, the world and his people might know that he is the Lord, that's what he was trying to do through those books, well, so it is here also. This is all happening so that the disciples might know, that we reading this might know, that Jesus is the Lord. Now I guess we might be uh, fairly slow to see that some of the many, many allusions here to the Exodus account back in the Old Testament, some of them are subtle, some of them are blatant. Uh, We might fail to pick up some of the other hints of things going on here, 
slow to empathise with their first century view of the sea. Back in the first century in the, in the Greco-Roman world, it was common to see the sea as a portal to the underworld, one of the links between the world and the underworld, um, hence why the disciples perhaps thought that Jesus was a ghost. And uh, we might therefore miss that Jesus here is asserting his authority over chaos and evil and death just by standing there above all these things. Uh, So we might miss some of those details, but surely we can't miss the, the big picture, the sort of simple grandeur of what's going on here, the majesty of Jesus as he stands on the water, master of it. What's more, that vision becomes even sharper uh, once we see it through the lens of the death and resurrection of Jesus. I suppose what we're seeing here really is that rather in, as in the transfiguration uh, later in the gospel, uh, what we're seeing is nothing less than a preview of Jesus in his divine glory. I suppose this is what eventually brings the disciples to say, verse 33, truly you are the son of God. Truly, you are the Son of God. So on the water, here stands the antidote for the doubter. In the light of this, extreme unbelievers like Herod simply shrivel to nothing. They're kind of pathetic and deluded. And Jesus wants to make himself known. Take courage, he says. It is I, or just I am. Don't be afraid. You see, in our doubt, we might imagine that God is hiding. He is not. Or deep down, we might be hiding behind our doubts, our own doubts, as an excuse to do other things. But don't think that we can get away so easily. Don't think that we can hide from God by doing that. Jesus is bigger than our doubts. He wants to make himself known. He is, in this account, big and bold. And of course, we need things big and bold because we are so slow to see the obvious. Now, I know that women know this about men already. Uh, we men uh, open the kitchen cupboard and shout indignantly, Where are the tea bags? Uh, this is what I do, anyway, or some other item um, that we're looking for. And our dear wives, you know, patiently come and stand beside us and point out that the kitchen cupboard is in fact full of tea bags. Perhaps it contains nothing but tea bags, boxes and boxes of them. And we say, ah yes, so there are. But all of us can be rather like that when it comes to the Lord Jesus. So it's important for Matthew to give us Jesus big and bold. That is what his gospel does. It's what the other Gospels do too. Uh, So here you might say it's a very specific resolution for us for the new year. It's not just about reading the Bible more, which would be great, of course, but reading the Gospels more, the Gospels account, Gospel accounts of the Lord Jesus, because it's in the Gospels that we get the most direct engagement with the person of Jesus himself. And that's what we need more than anything else for faith. Faith comes from seeing the greatness of Jesus displayed to us in the Gospels. And when we encounter it, it's unmissable. It's engaging. It draws us in. It brings us to faith. 
But there's one last thing to say before we're done tonight. We might well say that faith comes from seeing Jesus, from seeing the greatness of Jesus displayed to us in the Gospels. But the corollary to that is that doubt, doubt comes when we take our eyes off him. Doubt only comes, in fact, from taking our eyes off him. So this is what happens next. Peter gets out of the boat to walk on the water. But when he sees the strength of the wind, his nerve fails him and he begins to sink. That's a very puzzling little incident, isn't it? But I want to argue that most commentators throughout history have been right in taking this as a, a little story, a sort of mini story or an enacted parable about Christian faith in the face of difficulties. Now, we've got to be careful because just as with other parables that we find in the Gospels, uh, there is an issue of how much to read into this. You know, is it an encouragement, for example, actually to walk on water? Well, presumably not. And I don't know anyone who's tried that on the basis of this story. What about the other details? Uh, What does the wind represent? Uh, Does the boat represent the church? Some people have said that. Well, you might say, well, maybe. But it's hard to know what to make of that. Now, we do get some help from the Psalms here, where being overwhelmed by water is frequently used as a metaphor for being overwhelmed by trouble. And the cry of the psalmist is, save me, O God, Uh, just like Peter to Jesus in verse 30. And uh, we get another control by looking back from the death and resurrection of Jesus and noticing that what we have here in just a few verses is really just a complete preview of what happens to Peter in the, in the rest of the gospel story. This is the story of Peter, if you like, condensed down into a little mini story. So you can see that here that he starts off boldly enough. It's a pretty initial, initially a pretty impressive act of faith to step out of a boat onto, onto some water, is it not? Uh, but when trouble comes, he takes his eyes off Jesus and sinks like a stone. He is Peter the rock, after all. And so, of course, he sinks like a stone. And what happens in the kind of expanded story, the real story to come, is that at rock bottom in that story to come, Peter is going to deny Jesus and he's going to call down a curse upon himself and there's going to be a moment of severe doubt later in that story. All of which is going to squeeze every ounce of self-dependence out from from Peter And it's as only as Peter recognises that it's by Jesus alone that he can be saved that uh, he's able to cry out and be restored. So this is a a preview, if you like, of that bigger story of Peter in miniature. Now once we've seen that, we can begin to apply this to ourselves. And although doubt is a sensitive and sore issue, we need to Acts gently both with ourselves and with others, we also need to feel the force of the rebuke that Jesus gives Peter in verse 31. It is a rebuke. You of little faith, Jesus said. Why did you doubt? You might even translate it like this. For what reason did you doubt? Why would you take your eyes off me, says Jesus. Why would we take our eyes off the glory of Jesus? Why would you 
take your eyes off the source of life and salvation. You might even say, how stupid is that? So Peter has done something wrong. To have little faith is wrong. We do need to to know that and to remember that. But we also need to know that although this is a rebuke, it is backed up by compassionate and sovereign power. This is where the, the huge comfort of this story kicks in. As I said before, Jesus is bigger than our doubts. He is bigger than our little faith. Look at verse 30 with me again. And that picture of Jesus stretching out his hand and catching Peter, taking hold of him, uh, much as a father might take hold of a, a falling child. That is what the Lord is like. Look at these wonderful words one last time. But when Peter saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. So uh, as we finish tonight, let me implore you. If your car breaks down in the middle of a storm late at night, please do the right thing. Leave the spooky house on the nearby hill well alone. Just call the IRAC or the AA or whatever. Likewise, when you encounter doubt, let me implore you to do the right thing. Don't pretend it isn't there. That's one temptation. Deal with it. In that moment, don't allow yourself to drift away from from reading the Bible or, or coming to church like this to hear the Bible taught and to be encouraged by others. That is precisely the opposite of what you should be doing. Likewise, when helping or encouraging a friend or a family member who's struggling with doubt, don't ignore it, uh, but also don't panic. The answer in all cases is to be led first and foremost to Jesus, to the Jesus we encounter in the Gospels. Now, if you're helping someone else with this, the chances are they won't see the need for this. They may well say at that moment, I know all that stuff, I know all that stuff. But be persistent. They do need it. The example of Peter we've been seeing tonight reminds us that their doubt has its origins in taking their eyes off the Lord Jesus. They do need to encounter him again, afresh, before their faith can recover. So let me encourage us all to to resolve to talk about doubt much more in the coming year. It's a hard thing to talk about, but it would be great if we could talk about it much more openly and much more constructively. I know this would be wonderful, wouldn't it, to have an openness in our meetings and in our conversations with one another that makes it possible to talk about doubt. But also, let me say this, let us not talk, just talk about it for very long. Because what we're seeing here tonight is that that's not where the answer to doubt lies. We won't deal with doubt by talking about it or analysing it or picking it to pieces. 
Rather, what we're seeing here is that we deal with doubt by by taking our eyes off the doubt, off ourselves, off the troubles all around, and placing them firmly on the divine glory of Jesus. With him, and with him alone, lies certainty and salvation. And we have not been abandoned. He wants us to do all this. He wants us to see him and to know him, verse 33, as truly the Son of God. Well, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we want to confess that... um, we are probably more full of doubt than we care to admit, even to ourselves, and certainly to admit to others. Please help us to be much more open and free about this, uh, so that we can help one another, and so that we can address uh, the problem in ourselves and in those we love around us, by showing one another the Lord Jesus afresh. We thank you that you have provided us the means to do that, through these wonderful gospel accounts. So we pray for your help. We pray that 2013 will be a year where where, where doubt is addressed in this church family uh, through the display of the Lord Jesus as he comes to us through the gospels, through the Bible. And we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our final hymn to tonight, we're going to start to put all of this in practice by encouraging one another to fix our eyes on the Lord, uh, on the Lord Jesus. Uh, we're going to begin now as we mean to continue uh, throughout next year uh, to encourage one another to trust in him and trust in him alone. Please stand as the music begins.